The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And yourself? Doing well, Father. Thanks for being here. Father, we uh, received a bit of feedback concerning our last program in which we dealt with Catholic education and some of the, the options involved with education. And some of our viewers, Father, were a bit concerned that you came across as perhaps a bit overly harsh concerning homeschooling and uh, homeschooling families. And some of them were a bit concerned, Father, and they wanted to know, are you, in fact, against homeschooling? Well, Tom, there's an inherent danger in doing an impromptu program like this. Uh, People ask sometimes why I give such long answers. And it's partly because I'm, I'm trying to anticipate reactions and questions and uh, and answer all possible questions that could come up. And uh, and also, I mean, inevitably, after every program, I think of things that should have been said and things that I would have liked to have said differently, if at all. So I, uh, I certainly would not want anyone to get the impression that I'm against homeschooling. Uh, actually, very much, I'm in, for, I'm in favor of homeschooling, in principle, certainly. Um, the, uh, in fact, we, we know of some uh, very, very good homeschool programs, uh, but not, not homeschool programs that are good in themselves necessarily. It's when they're put into practice that you see the actual goodness of them. And that's what I'm saying. We've actually seen some very well-applied homeschool programs uh, in our own parishes, in our own families, and uh, let's face it, I mean, it's, it's 99.99% mom, right? Mom is really the one who <clears throat> has to make the homeschool program successful. And so we've seen some really highly successful programs conducted by very dedicated mothers who are like the valiant woman mentioned in the book of Proverbs. We read about her on the uh, great feast days of some of the uh, mother saints, you know, and so... Uh, uh, we have a goodly number of them around the missions, and, and notably here at Immaculate Conception, in fact. I'm happy to say a number of those were educated in our own school, so they are now able to pass on their knowledge to to the next generation. And um, so, no, I, I uh, you notice we, we listed homeschooling um, with the title program uh educating Catholic children. So clearly, I mean, homeschooling was included under that title. So uh, that's not to reject it. That's to include it as a means of schooling the children. And these days, very, very necessary. Um, We need mothers who are willing to do that. Uh, But the question seemed to involve, from the beginning, what is the Catholic Church's teaching on the subject? The Church does not in any way... uh, reject or minimize the value of homeschooling. Quite the contrary. Uh, she sees that that is really necessary. The, the parents are the pr- pr- premier educators. They have the premier authority from God to educate their children. <clears throat> and to see that the children are educated. But um, the church has given the example throughout the centuries of establishing schools where parents will send their schools, uh, send their children to be educated and uh, that's how we started off the program. So we got off on the on the track of the actual Catholic school, as we have the traditional Catholic schools around the country, which is not the same, obviously, as homeschooling. Um, now, of course, if if uh, those in question, you mentioned some thought that I might have, well, you mentioned the word harsh. I, I don't recall having been harsh in that regard. If that, did they use that word? Or yes. Did, okay. I'm a little puzzled by that because... I didn't recall being harsh in any way about homeschooling. 
But uh, by the same token, I mean, any, any homeschooling mom or non-homeschooling mom who knows me would have to know that I've dedicated well over half, half of my life to the school here. And uh, it's taken a lot of effort, a lot of, a lot of well, frankly, a lot of sacrifice uh, and uh, to keep the school going for the benefit of the children. So I obviously have to believe in this, in this effort. As a homeschool mother who's put so much time and effort into homeschooling her children, I certainly have to believe in the effort to have the school operating here too. <clears throat> and if I point out uh, the fact that, you know, the children have daily mass at the school, and they have daily access to receive our Lord in Holy Communion. These are things that the church values very highly, obviously. Um, they have access to the sacrament of penance, right. can receive absolution, you know, day by day. They, uh, they have Father Greenwell teaching them uh, religion in the uh, middle grade, well, I'd say 7th through 10th grades, actually, and for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, <laughs> And often it's actually in sickness and in health. They have me, they have me teaching 11th and 12th grade religion as well. And I would hope that would be of some value also. So when I think of these things that would not really be incorporated into a, a homeschool program, I have to put value on these things. And I have to say that these things are worth the, the effort. <clears throat> so, um, no homeschooling parent should interpret my um, placing importance on these things necessarily as some sort of critique or criticism of what they're doing. Okay, they have their reasons for having the children home. And uh, these are reasons that uh, they as parents have to decide. I, I respect that. You know, I've never really... Uh, any any homeschool parent who would come to me and ask me, well, what, what do you think I should do? Should I put the children in school or should I teach them at home? My advice is always going to be, first, foremost, we'll put them in the school, right? Uh, because of the, the factors I just mentioned. <clears throat> but that doesn't take away from the fact that the child could be educated and well-educated at home, too. There are just certain things that the child can't have there that they would have in the school here. Now, those parents might say, well, there are certain things that they could have at home that they wouldn't have in the school. And th that is true. There are certain things, too, that would be so. By the way, you know, it came out in the last program that um, there was a question about children attending Mass every day, and that actually being required in the school. Well, uh, there, there are parents who brought that up to me in the past, and they might have thought that I just sort of brushed that aside. And even though I might appear to brush it aside, I'd never do. Because I'll go and investigate. And I did this time. I, I started investigating this whole question. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and I found that uh, before Vatican II, it was not necessarily standard operating procedure. But it was very common that Catholic schools had Mass offered every day as part of the school day. And all of the children in the school attended. It was very common. I won't say it was universal, but it, it was... Um, it was uh, far from being unknown. I, I, I'm hesitating to say it was standard operating procedure, but there were enough schools that were doing it uh, back in the 50s, mm -hmm. maybe in the 40s. But earlier on, it was understood that children would attend Mass every day, a priest in a parish. But um, I wanted to examine the question from the standpoint of Holy Communion. So I was looking into the question of what the Church herself wants with regard to the Catholic people, notably the children, receiving our Lord in Holy Communion. And uh, there's an excellent article in the 1913 Catholic Encyclopedia. And I know many of our families have access to that. And if they don't have it in book form, they can find it online. Um, the Catholic Encyclopedia of 1913 has an article entitled... Um, Frequent communion. Now, it might be under communion or holy communion, and then as a subtitle, frequent, but it's in there as an entry, frequent communion. And that article gives a brief history of the mind of the church and the actual practice of the Catholic people 
uh, from the very beginning. And I found it very interesting. Uh, there were things in there I didn't know. Um, but uh, also, there is a, um, an, a, a uh, document, a, a decree that was put out under Pope St. Pius X, dated 1910, uh, 1910, that's right. And it's entitled Singulari Quadam. It was put out by the Congregation of Sacred Rites, sometimes called the Sacred Congregation of Rites. Uh, Pope Pius X personally reviewed the document and then ordered it to be published. So it comes out with the, the highest, highest authority. And in that document, St. Pius X was trying to, to urge the Catholic people to receive Holy Communion every day. He said this is extremely necessary, and he was really zeroing in, on, especially on the young people, the children who are growing up in the world today. And notice, I mean, this was 1910. This was over 100, this is about 110 years ago almost. And uh, he was talking about how children in their innocence needed to begin receiving Holy Communion so that uh, they, they would have that, uh, that spiritual nutrition, as it were, to strengthen them against the temptations of the world that they were getting into. He said the Jansenists themselves, the heretics, had proposed the idea of Holy Communion as a reward for being in the state of grace. But he said that wasn't the Catholic view. He said the Catholic view is that the Holy Communion is the means for God giving us the strength, the nourishment of God's grace to enable us to remain in the state of grace, to resist temptation. And um, <clears throat> so he said that that means that the Catholic people needed to have access to Holy Communion, especially young people. Uh, he. There was even a reference in the Catholic Encyclopedia article to the practice in the Eastern Rite, and even up till the Middle Ages in the Western Rite, to administer Holy Communion to infants when they were baptized. Mm -hmm. Now, we all know that that was done. <clears throat> I didn't know it was done in the Western Rite until, let's say, the 13th century, but according to the article, it was. And uh, in the Middle Ages, then, it became uh, a rarity to receive Holy Communion. There was a kind of sense, a sense of, of trying to prevent uh, our Lord of the Blessed Sacrament from being profaned in any way. And again, a certain a rigorous mentality set in so that you know, you'd have saints who might receive Holy Communion four or five times a year. Religious congregations of sisters might be limited, even according to their constitutions or statutes to receiving Holy Communion maybe eight or nine, ten times a year. So it was, uh, it was really not the mind of the church to do this, though. And uh, great saints at that time were militating against it, trying to encourage people to receive regularly and to return to the original practice of receiving every time one attended Mass. During times of persecution in the early days, uh, in times of the Roman Empire, Catholics could even take the Blessed Sacrament home with them and store it in a worthy place, like a little private chapel of theirs, and receive daily. But this was during time of persecution. There are people now who might be shocked at that, but that's what Padre Pro did. That's what Father Pro did, Amigo Pro, in uh, Mexico uh, during the persecution of the Cayes and the, the, um, the Bolsheviks, let's say, in Mexico back in the 1920s and 1930s, the time of the Cristeros. So he was actually following a very ancient practice, practice for the Catholic people in times of persecution. So uh, anyway, the saints, such as St. Alphonsus Liguori and others, prevailed finally in, in bringing the Catholic people back to receiving Holy Communion very often. And St. Pius X, even at a Eucharistic Congress, uh, uh, composed a prayer and issued a prayer uh, with it, which was indulgence. I mean, there was an indulgence granted for praying the prayer. There was a prayer for the restoration of daily communion in the lives of the Catholic people. Yeah. And he actually also instituted a plenary indulgence for those who would receive Holy Communion worthily at least five times during the week. A plenary indulgence for that. That's how much he was anxious to have the Catholic people, especially the young, in their schools receive Holy Communion regularly, daily. He considered, St. Pius X considered that to be the daily 
practice as the ideal practice for the Catholic child. To receive Holy Communion every day of his life, he thought necessary. And again, Tom, you know, you see that when St. Pius X was elected Pope, what he went through and the anguish he went through in accepting the papacy. And he explained it in his first encyclical when he said that he feared that they were in the times of the coming of the Antichrist. So that's what he was saying 110 years ago. This is what the young people need. This is what the children need now. How much more so in our own day? And I know I've heard people object and say, well, look, my child went through a school where they had daily mass and daily communion. <clears throat> my child, you know, didn't turn out as pious as I, as I had hoped. You know, some of my, my, I might have a child who doesn't even go to Mass anymore. Or if he does go to Mass, doesn't receive Holy Communion, or... Well, can that happen? Well, of, co of course it can happen. But if they're saying the reason why that happened is my child began to resent going to Mass and receiving Communion because he was required to do so every day, <clears throat> I mean, I would say that that doesn't make any sense any more than you might say, well, look... There were saints back in the Middle Ages who received Holy Communion four times a year, and that was the key to their holiness. That's what made them saints. That doesn't make sense either. So uh, I think people are, are actually scapegoating, in a sense, daily Mass, because I suspect what's happening is <clears throat> that children are complaining and whining to parents, and parents are validating their complaints. If the child says, oh, you know, it's hard, we're tired, and going to Mass is so difficult. Well, there are parents who would use that as an opportunity to teach the child the significance of the Mass and how important it is, right. and what a blessing it is to have that Mass. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are parents who would say, oh, it's, it is hard, I know, I know it's hard, but we just have to put up with it and make the best of it, you know, and, and get through it. And if th that's the message to the child. What does the child understand from that? And what does the child understand? I, I asked our own students here one day, uh, a couple of weeks ago, what, would you, what, what message would you get if I told you that we were going to make the Mass optional two days a week? <clears throat> Their answer was the same. They, all, all of the students in the classroom said, well, you'd be telling us the message that it's not really that important. Mm -hmm. And you know, that is the message that they would get. Yeah. It's not that important to make it optional. You can either go to Mass or you can go to a study hall. Well, you know what the children are going to take. They have the same human nature that you and I came into the world with. And uh, if it's an option of doing my math homework tonight or, or doing it at study hall tomorrow instead of Mass, I know what I probably would have done at that age. So, um, now, St. Pius X himself was making it very, very clear and using his authority as a supreme pontiff to try to encourage the Catholic people to receive Mass, to receive, attend Mass and receive Holy Communion every day. And he was insisting it was most necessary for the children. Mm. So that's what we're trying to implement here. It puzzles me that we have organizations supposedly dedicated to St. Pius X who are pulling in exactly the opposite direction and going against what he considered to be so important. Mm -hmm. And Father, I wonder if these parents who have this attitude of, you know, supporting their children, like you said, when they kind of resist against the, the attending daily mass, I wonder if they treat other prayers such as the, the family, the, the daily family rosary, if they treat that the same way, if the children in some manner object to praying the, the daily rosary, if the parents will kind of have the same attitude and just say, well, okay, that's, you know, that's fine. Tom, that's a very good you question. You don't have to. When it comes to the family rosary, are they, are they willing to exempt them from that? Or do they think... Oh, my child doesn't pray the rosary because we made the child pray the rosary in our home when they were young. Maybe they're thinking that way too. I mean, maybe they, maybe, maybe the child doesn't brush his teeth. Exactly. No, exactly. because he was made to brush his teeth in those days, right? Or comb his hair. You know, uh, you see, there's a, there's a, I mean, am I being facetious? Somewhat. But you see, the idea that, the child resents it because the child was made to do it. When I asked our students here, are there students who resent going to Mass, being made to go to Mass? Are there students who don't? Are there students who delight and uh, rejoice at going to Mass every day? 
and not even thinking, well, it's, I'm required to, to do this because they want to do this. And the student's answer was, well, it depends on the student. Right. It depends on the kid. And the fact is, I mean, there, there are some children who just uh, don't like to be told what to do. And they're going to resent it. And if you encourage them in that attitude, well, they're going to grow up with that resentment. And that's going to be the excuse for everything. I will not eat peas. My parents made me eat peas when I was seven years old. And to this day, I have an aversion to peas. I refuse to eat peas because it was, it was demanded of me in my you know, youth. I mean, this, there's, there's something wrong with that attitude. Parents should, if, if they say that, if they're saying my child resents going to mass because at your school, when the child was a student there, the child was, was made to go to mass, I would say to the parent, well, maybe your, ch your child needed an attitude adjustment, <laughs> and maybe you should have helped with that and, and tried to help your child through that and to understand the significance and the importance of the mass. And I get the impression that, that the parents were uh, not giving the, the child what the child needed at that, at that time. Mm -hmm. Something else, one reason why children <clears throat> resent going to Mass, I found, is because the children are already worldly. They're already worldly. And if there's anything, if there's anything that places in the soul an aversion for the Mass, it's worldliness. So if you get a, a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old who's already worldly, there's going to be a resistance to Mass. Where would that worldliness have come from? Parents might say, well, we didn't, we didn't raise our child to be worldly, uh, worldly. They say, well, maybe not, but maybe you didn't, weren't the only one raising your child. Maybe there were other influences. Maybe there were friends. Maybe there were relatives over weekends. You know, maybe you think back to that. You might find out that there were other influences that made your child worldly and uh, had that influence on him or her. And I'll tell you, when I see a child who gets into the teenage years who resents going to Mass, uh, I, I, can, I can't help but see, not because of that, but even independently of that, a worldliness. And that helps me to explain why there is a resistance to prayer, the Rosary, uh, Mass, our Lord and Holy Communion. They're attached to, to something in the world that is not healthy. Father, I think this ties in a lot with the uh, question of fortitude, which you talked about last program. You know, we mentioned the the idea of unschooling, where the the uh, the students are not not uh, forced, quote unquote, to do any particular type of schooling. They uh, can just kind of explore whatever they're interested in. And you mentioned how that that can lead to a lack of fortitude, where we must follow our Lord, take up our, our cross daily, follow Him. And I think you perhaps can see the exact same thing in this this question of students who are. Uh, not being made to attend daily mass, you can see this this real lack of fortitude. But I, I think another problem, Father, with the soul question is that uh, it's often viewed just purely through a natural lens, and and this you're the, right, Tom. This, the supernatural element is is totally totally lost. Sure, the question you, of the graces exactly, doesn't even exactly. I mean, minds. correct me if I'm wrong, Father, but is is not the mass the greatest uh, the greatest possible channel of, of graces that we have? Mm. Um, so I think that well, the sacrifice of Calvary is the, the source of all grace. Exactly, and that, that's what we have in the yeah, sacrifice of mass. The mass. And, and I think that uh, if one were to view things with a more supernatural method rather than just this purely natural lens, I think that that could uh, you know, do a lot. Parents, are, their parents are just—they basically coddle their children. They do, mm -hmm. and that coddling uh, is very bad for them. It gets back to what you were saying: they're not required to do anything really hard for them, and. Um, this can be very, very bad for them. You know, I mean, every child has to learn <coughs> to overcome his own weaknesses. And that means a child has to demand, a parent has to demand from the child certain things. The child might not be willing to give at first, but the, child, the parent has to demand it for the child's own good. So the child learns to do hard things. If you raise a child who is accustomed that... that Whenever something gets hard, they can just bail out. I mean, you're setting that child up for failure, not only in life, but in death, in, 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 in eternity. And so it's very, very important that uh, parents not coddle their children. 
that recognize a sign of weakness when it's there and, and use their fatherly and motherly wisdom to address that, to help their child through it and to be stronger for it. You know, somebody suggested that uh, this unschooling thing resembled Maria Montessori's method of letting the children do as they please and follow their own lights and their preferences. And I can see why somebody would at first liken it to the unschooling to Maria Montessori's idea. But if I'm not mistaken, Maria Montessori's uh, was not promoting unschooling. She had children in the Montessori school, okay? So there already was some kind of structure, implied at least. And yes, in the early years, the children were allowed to follow kind of the natural bent of their interests and so on. But as the years progressed and they got into higher and higher grades, uh, more discipline was required and more uh, was required of them, of the students. So the students were more directed and more structured the longer they were in the school, the older they got. And this was necessary to direct their minds and uh, to, uh, to complete their education, to complete the things that perhaps they found less, less enticing, uh, less gratifying, but things that were certainly necessary for them to be well-educated. Uh, so uh, Maria Montessori it was a Catholic lady, actually I understand a very good Catholic, devout Catholic lady who loved the Mass. I think she even wrote, published a book on the Mass. Okay. She did. It's very well written, too. It's a nice little book. Hmm. Uh, she, she wasn't uh, just uh, saying to the world, look, let the children uh, grow to maturity, grow to adulthood, following nothing but their own natural desires and inclinations. No, they were schooled. <clears throat> But she did see the value of letting children's um, interests um, be satisfied also, uh, especially in those early years of inquiry and curiosity, during the grammar years, you might say. Okay, But after that, direction was necessary to finish the education, sure. to complete it, I should say. Well, Father, in this uh, second half of the program, I'd like to transition, if if we could, to a uh, to a, a different topic that uh, always seems to come up this time of year. No, you're scaring me, Tom. <laughs> well, very very fitting. You we have this uh, beginning of the so-called holiday season, and uh, we're about to uh, celebrate or not celebrate the, uh, the the so-called holiday of Halloween. That's not a transition. This fits very well that we were talking before. Okay. Because the families, the homeschooling mm -hmm. and, and our traditional Catholic school, yeah. we both see the value of addressing that question. Mm -hmm. And Father... And want to avoid the evils there. As you know, there are undoubtedly many uh, many traditional Catholics who unfortunately are preparing to uh, to celebrate mm -hmm. this this Halloween. And uh, so, Father, is this a good idea at all? You know, any, any true Catholic knows that October 31st is the, the vigil uh, today of fast and abstinence in preparation for the, uh, the great holy day, the, the feast day of all saints on November 1st. So it seems rather uh, contradictory if on this, uh, the, the day before, when we're supposed to be preparing for this great feast where we celebrate all, all of these saints in heaven and the, the friends of God, when we're celebrating kind of the, uh, the, the demons and, and devils, as it seems, in this in this Halloween or hell night, as you have called it. So, Father, is there any kind of contradiction there? Is it a good idea to celebrate Halloween? What, what are your thoughts on this? Well, unfortunately, the modern world has turned Halloween, that is, hallows, holy souls, the saints, evening, into hell evening. They actually call it hell night in Detroit, for example. Uh, and that's actually not a bad translation of Halloween, uh, evening of hell. <coughs> and uh, should we celebrate Halloween? Well, you know, you, you look back at the history time, which is we do. We look at the development of these things. And we find that in certain countries, um, European countries, Ireland, uh, you see the, the jack-o'-lantern and all these symbols and so on. We're, we're told all kinds of different theories as to how these practices came about historically. And uh, some are trying to make us see, well, this is an organic, natural development of, of let's say, theology and faith. Um, and so 
we want to celebrate the saints at All Saints Day. So we have All Souls Day the following day. November 1st and November 2nd are dedicated to the souls of those in heaven. November 2nd, uh, November 1st, I should say. November 1st, All Saints Day is dedicated to the souls in heaven. November 2nd, All Souls Day is dedicated to the souls in purgatory. So it would kind of make sense that the day before uh, All Saints Day, you'd have like a commemoration of all the souls in hell. I was just reading somebody's explanation about this, that this was the, kind of the Catholic thinking that went into that. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, well, this is really clever. It's not intelligent, but it's very clever. You know? So we're going to have a day in which we commemorate all the souls in hell. That's interesting. I never heard of that as a Catholic, but let's start as fast as a new tradition. You know? <laughs> okay. So, um, But in any case, the, the idea was that um, the, the Catholic people would have these jack-o'-lanterns to remind them to pray for the souls that are not yet in heaven, or they'd have other practices to remind them that there are still suffering souls. But you'd think that would be associated with All Souls Day if we're talking about souls in purgatory. Okay. So I, I don't buy these explanations trying to give us an idea, uh, certainly in terms of what people do today to celebrate Hell Evening. Um, you know, it's, it's, a very, it's an occult festival. Uh, witches, the witches celebrate Samhain, right? It's spelled... Samhain, but it's not pronounced that. You know, it's Samhain, the Feast of Samhain. They say that the veil between this life and the netherworld becomes very, very thin at this time of year, and the spirits can freely pass back and forth, okay? So we have these wicked spirits who are not spirits of those in the grace of God, quite the contrary. They're spirits of hell who wander the earth, supposedly, right? Certainly, that's what the Wiccans would present to us. <clears throat> And um, they say they don't believe in Satan. But the Satanists certainly could second their motion to this and, and uh, believe that, that the, the demons in hell can cross into this world and, uh, and wreak havoc here. And heaven knows they're doing it, aren't we? As we pray with the prayer of St. Saint, Saint Michael the Archangel to cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who wander through the world, you know, seeking the ruin of souls. Right. We know that these demons do wander through the world, and they don't just do it on October 31st. Uh, they do it day by day. I mean, they're on the loose, they're on the prowl. And uh, these are damned souls who are seeking, really, to seize, uh, to um, gain the condemnation of others, because they're moved by hatred. hatred, hatred toward God, hatred toward others, and hatred toward themselves. So, in any case, October 31st is a day, as you say, a vigil day, a fast and abstinence, a preparing for the great feast day of All Saints Day. And if there is going to be any, uh, any third celebration joined with All Saints Day and All Souls Day, it would be the last Sunday of October celebration of the Feast of Christ the King to show that he is not only king and lord in heaven with the saints, king and lord in the church suffering in purgatory, but he's king and lord here on earth by right of all the souls in this life, in the church militant, and outside the church militant, of all mankind, Christ is the king and lord of all of them, whether they recognize him or not. There is no celebration of souls in hell. <clears throat> the, um, the fact that people will dress up and be ghastly and... Um, promote this wretched, twisted, wicked form of celebration, of celebrating hell, hell evening, or let's say damned souls, souls in hell, because they hate, because they hate God. As I say, they hate others. They hate themselves. I mean, the souls in hell are, are continually cursing themselves at the top of their lungs. They don't have lungs now, but the resurrection, they'll get them back. But at the, with all the might of their, 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 their powers of their souls, they're continually cursing. They're cursing themselves with all their power. <clears throat> and this is sometimes represented during exorcisms, when the exorcist is surrounded by this awful sound of seemingly millions of voices shrieking all at once. You know? So that nothing can be discerned, deterred, exactly what was said, 
but it is it is extremely unsettling and it's meant to it's meant to discourage the, the exorcist distract him and discourage him um and that's what they're trying to produce here <clears throat> we have the houses of horrors of course haunted houses we're supposed to go and, and spend money, sometimes big bucks, to get in there to walk through these horrible, horrible scenes of cruelty and savagery and and uh, be scared out of our wits, you know, be scared silly. This is what we're paying for. Boy, talk about original sin at its worst, <clears throat> that people do that for fun. They need that to get the adrenaline going. What's, there's something wrong with somebody um, psychologically, but also physically, I think, at that point, if they need, need that. But if somebody wanted to go to a true house of horrors, <clears throat> if somebody really, really wanted to go to a house of horrors on <clears throat> Halloween, let them go stand outside an abortion clinic. Now, there's a house of horrors. That's what we should see as the real house of horrors. And we should be standing out there saying, this is the real house of horrors. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people protesting abortion sometimes put up big signs of the, the aborted baby's bodies lying in the bucket at the bottom of the abortion clinic floor, uh, on, the, on the floor. They have pictures of pieced together babies who have been torn limb from limb in their mother's wounds. And people have reacted very strongly against this. And these pictures are horrible. They're disgusting. I don't want a child to see these things. And they, they tear them down. They smash them. They say they're horrible. And look. Look what they do with Halloween. Look at the horrors and the, 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 the degraded um, savagery that they promote for Halloween. These are the same people who do that. But they can't stand to look <clears throat> at the body of an aborted baby. Why? Because I'm afraid it just goes right into their conscience, you know. <clears throat> yep. Okay, fine. Let's take them, let's take them up on this. <clears throat> Stand outside that abortion clinic. Stand outside the real house of horrors on, on August, October 31st. <clears throat> say exactly what it is and have those pictures and confront them with that and say, this is the real horror. Let them see those pictures of those babies that are aborted there. I mean, how many of those people driving by will be filled with rage? Well, be it some kind of Halloween party dressed as some ghoul or some monster or some devil, right, later on, and think it's wonderful. Be very proud of themselves. Now, I, I think uh, there are ways that we need to turn the tide in the, and, and let people see what we see. Because so far, uh, we've been trying mightily to get them to do that, but uh, and with some success, too. But there's a lot more we could do. Father, I think that's a great point to make about the, the abortion clinics because, um, you know, it almost is the exact same thing, essentially, where in some of these haunted houses, that, you know, or, or whatever they are, the, the houses of, of horror, they have, uh, you know, just the, these supposed body bags mm -hmm. hanging around that are uh, su supposedly, you know. They have people being dismembered, right? Yeah, they, up yeah walk, walking around with, with chainsaws and, and they have, you know, the blood dripped all over the floor. So really... Hey, if Planned Parenthood wanted to do a fundraiser... <laughs> let, let them open their doors on October 31st and let people wander through. Definitely. Watch what they're doing. I don't mean to ask, uh, but have you ever been in one of these haunted houses? Yes, sir. Have you really? Yes, I would imagine most people have. I never have been. Mm -hmm. um, not even out of curiosity. Okay. Maybe I, as a priest, I've just seen too much uh, along the I-75 and I-71. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's horrible enough <laughs> at times. But... Um, but you, so when you, you, you speak as though you, you know what's in there. And that's why I ask. Uh, that, uh, I figured you have first-hand knowledge of this, right? Yes, unfortunately. Did you enjoy it? No, Father, not at all. <laughs> that, that was actually one, one question I was going to ask you. You kind of touched on this, but do you think that there is some kind of uh, mental disorder with this, um, just the, this craving to, to be scared out of, out of your wits? I mean, it seems that, you know, this, the notion of fear, we, we have that uh, to, uh, you know, discourage us from doing things that would be harmful or, or, or dangerous. I mean, it, I guess you could kind of relate that to the sensation of pain. You know, we, we, if we, something is painful, we're going to avoid that. So is there some kind of... Well, there is the fight or flight response we have. Right. Uh, the fight or flight response always involves adrenaline. Yeah. 
And they, they talk about adrenaline junkies who need to jump off cliffs uh, where, you know, base jumping, and they need to do these otherwise insane things to get the adrenaline flowing. Uh, normal daily life isn't enough to do it for them, <laughs> obviously. And there are people, I guess, who have that. Is that a kind of insanity? Yeah, I think it is. It's the result of original sin that we we feel a need for this uh, to make life worth living or <laughs> enjoyable or whatever. But, you know, so we're, we're all born with original sin. We all have that, a kind of a fascination with the weird yeah. and playing practical jokes and scaring the living daylights out of each other, standing inside a darkened room with your hand against the wall over the light switch. <laughs> so instead of reaches through to turn the light on, you grab their arm and, and they, they scream. There's something in, in us all that has this sort of disordered, I stress the word, disordered appreciation for these for these things, scaring each other and thinking that uh, that's hilarious. Um, but um, if people go into these haunted houses or house of horrors or whatever, if they don't have a mental disorder when they go in, they will. They will eventually have a mental disorder if this is what they enjoy. You know, we, we saw photographs of children in Beirut, uh, in Kabul, and so on, playing in the streets with dead bodies, corpses lying around. And the kids are out there playing in the streets. <clears throat> and so these dead bodies were just so much litter. Now, that's not normal, but it is for them. It has become normal for them to see that. They're desensitized to that. And you see the uh, the Islamic State terrorists raising their children to see horror, to actually assist in cutting people's heads off. Not just do it in front of the children, but to train the children to do it with their own hands. We're talking about six, seven-year-old children. What are they doing? They're, they're, they're actually inducing a mental disorder in those children, making them vicious and cruel. So they consider this to be normal and even desirable and and praiseworthy and i'm telling you you know if we raise our children the same way to be so desensitized to these horrible things we're going to reap a a, a, a a cyclone of blood we're going to reap a very very horrible harvest to this <clears throat> and uh you know the street gangs and all the rest all of these are kids who've gotten used to this violence and it's normal it's just a way of life for them um and you know, we we can we are traditional Catholics cannot allow this. We cannot allow this to happen to our children. But Father, what, what would you say to those? Because um, as I mentioned, and as you know very well, that there are, there are a lot of traditional Catholics who who see no no problem with Halloween. They will, uh, you know, there are there are all kinds of uh, well, the horrible things. There are there are all I mean, kinds. How should we celebrate? We're celebrating on Hallow's Eve. <clears throat> okay, so we do want them to celebrate, but we want them to celebrate the saints. Right. Yeah. Um, but you're saying there, there are traditional Catholics who see no problem celebrating with all the horrible, ghoulish, sure. uh, macabre stuff. Exactly. There, there are, there are okay. haunted, there are haunted hay rides, <coughs> there are haunted houses, various things, you know, what the traditional Catholics will, will attend and they'll, they'll say, you know, there's, there's no problem with this. It's just an innocent little, um, you know, fun little game. We're going to dress up in some silly costumes and, you know, have a little, uh, you know, just have a little fun scaring people. It's just kind of a, a, a little, you know, it's just a, a fun, harmless thing. How would you how would you respond to something like that? Well, you know, it gets to the point where people enjoy that and they become inured to it and, and consider it to be just good, clean fun. I mean, <laughs> to put on a skeleton suit or something like that, you know, I mean, that's one thing. But the, the, the horrible masks they're selling in these stores now, the party stores, are just so, so awful. You know, they're competing with each other to be as grotesque as they possibly can be. This goes far beyond the, the gargoyles, you know, around the medieval cathedrals. We're talking about going to the part of just being mentally deranged and uh, <clears throat> to glorify what is truly horrible and hateful <clears throat> that we have a natural aversion to that is being broken down by this. I mean, you know, there, there are people today who now go to these concerts and 
they they want to, in a sense, recreate hell. They actually celebrate hell at some of these rock concerts, with some of these rock bands who are uh, going through uh, rituals of d demonic possession right on the stage there. Um, there are programs that detail this, that, that actually show this happening uh, uh, concerning some of the most famous and, uh, and popular rock bands in, in history doing this, going through this, uh, even the the uh, the ritual outlined by Aleister Crowley, who styled himself the wickedest man on earth, a, a man who wrote the Book of the Law um, about the rise of the of the feminine, right now coming to the matriarchal society, uh, the Book of the Law, uh, which is not the law of God but the law of Satan, actually. And so, what was it, Jimmy Page? Was he? Uh, he was a rock star, right? Was he? Was he on stage going through? I think, I think uh, there, there actually uh, is video footage of him doing just that, going through that ritual ceremony of invoking Satan to take possession of him. <clears throat> One of his concerts, and they're flashing red lights everywhere and making everything look as hellish and demonic as they can. And I think these these young people actually want to go to hell because they think it'll be fun because they've become so accustomed to horror, <clears throat> audio, audio, audible horror, visual horror, they become so accustomed to it, with the piercings and all the other things, the tattooing they do to themselves and everything like that, and all the, uh, the uh, uh, mutilation of the body that they're doing, that they actually think they're going to enjoy hell, and they actually want to go there. So I would just tell uh, you know anybody who says yes, let's let's find this enjoyable, that they're they're actually flirting with uh, death, and I mean not just worldly death. I'm talking about everlasting death. And do you think, Father, that these lesser, more innocent celebrations can lead to these worse things that you're talking about? Because you know, how would um, you know? What if, if if someone said, you know, I just I have a few children, you know, mm -hmm. ten, eleven, twelve, maybe younger than that. Uh, I, I want to dress them up in a little princess costume or something we're going to go around the neighborhood knock on a few doors and get some candy there's nothing wrong with that what's wrong with that there's nothing, nothing wrong, wrong with dressing them as a princess a cowboy uh dressing them up as a you know any natural thing that, that you know we see is you know, i'm talking about the horror of it all that's that's i'm uniquely talking about that i see nothing wrong with uh parents dressing their children up even if they don't dress them as saints to dress them up as uh, uh teddy bears or dress them up as uh you know, some uh, heroic figure, whatever it may be. Uh, I see nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But um, it's the twisted, the macabre, the horrible, the distorted that we have a natural aversion to. That is what people should, they, they have to avoid that. Uh, they have to be warned. I mean, you know, can this happen gradually? Yeah. How does an alcoholic become an alcoholic? Does he become an alcoholic overnight? He has a predisposition to it, perhaps because of genetics. And if he does, and he knows that in his family tree there are a lot of alcoholics, he's got to realize, well, I may have a predisposition to this problem, right? Because of the effect of alcohol on my brain. But the fact is, um, you know, one gets into alcoholism drink by drink, right? And drug abuse drug by drug, right? Uh, hit by hit, or whatever they want to say, and puff by puff. And so it is with this, too. I mean, it happens gradually over time. <clears throat> so they may say, oh, I went through the haunted house uh, last year. I, you know, it didn't make a monster out of me. Um, you might want to take a survey about that, though. But, but anyway, so they might say, yeah, see, I'm still the same person I was. But uh, again, what would you expect? You don't expect them to go in <clears throat> as some, you know, clean-cut uh, All-American boy or girl and come out at the other end uh, looking like uh, one of these, you know, mass murderers from <laughs> one of these horror movies. You know, it doesn't happen like that. But it happens little by little, and they have to be careful about that. But when I see the kids uh, out on the street and they're dressed like, uh, I don't know, you know, as you mentioned, princesses and cowboys and and uh, nowadays, who knows what else they would dress them like. Now the, the boy would be dressed as a princess, I suppose. Um, <clears throat> but in any case, uh, that would be a horror. 
clearly. Mm-hmm. But when I, I see a child uh, trying to be some monstrous, uh, monstrous thing, horrible to look at, mm-hmm. uh, that'll give a you know that should give the child nightmares, <laughs> right? then then I say that's wrong. Yeah. Certainly, no Catholic should should allow that. And no Catholic really should allow his or her children to go into these uh, haunted houses or houses of horrors. They should not let them go there. So they should explain to them why it's wrong. So, Father, what is the uh, what is the preferred, the ideal itinerary for a traditional Catholic family on October 31st? I think they should uh, have Halloween parties. They have control. Okay. Hey, look. Um, young people go out and, and they drink. Okay. They drink in the houses of their friends, okay? They're not under surveillance. Sometimes they are. Sometimes even adults will uh, will, will be there and, and supply them with this. And they will drink. And they will, I mean, talking about underage kids, you know? This is the, the, the mentality of the day. This to them is really almost innocent compared to what else they could be doing at these parties. Uh, and traditional Catholics shouldn't be naive. They, they shouldn't be naive about two things. What's going on with the internet and their internet in their homes? <clears throat> and what's going on, maybe in their own homes, when they're not there and their 16-year-old has his friends over? They, they uh, should not be naive about that. They shouldn't just assume that all is well. They should assume that it's not and verify. Trust, but verify. What are they trusting? They're trusting that their 16-year-old boy is a 16-year-old boy. That's what they're trusting. So when the boy says, or the girl says, you don't trust me, the parent says, but I do trust you. I trust you to be a 16-year-old girl, and I trust you to be a 16-year-old boy. And believe it or not, I myself was a 16-year-old boy once or twice, or a 16-year-old girl once or twice, and I know what kind of temptations go on. And that was 30 years ago, or whatever. So... I'm I'm trusting you, but I'm also verifying because I'm responsible for your soul, and I'm not going to uh, be careless in my bad responsibility because I love you too much. So I would like to think that a child might not appreciate that answer, but will appreciate the answer at the same time, you know. And um, the child will no long will not always be a child, and the child will come to understand. But that's one of those things that helps the child. To grow up, mm-hmm. telling the child things like that and doing things like that. So, um, you know, it's the same when the, when the parent lets the child go out on Halloween night, you know, and they think, oh, they're going to see, you know, um, uh, they're going to see Gone with the, well, no, they're going to see Mary Poppins and they're going to see, um, um, you know, uh, the sound of music, of course, you know, how wholesome is that? And their friends wind up at, uh, you know, um, like Hell Freezes Over or something, the, the local uh, horse of horrors there. Uh, parents should not just assume that when their child goes out with others, the child is, let's say, morally better or stronger than the others. <clears throat> or even if the child, their child is, even if they're right, that that child is not susceptible to being influenced and pressured into doing something that he or she knows. Parents wouldn't want them to do. But even further than that, Father, should we be having parties and celebrations on on this this day? I'm sorry, we get back to that. That's what we should be doing. We should be having parties and controlled and doing what we know is the right thing to do. That's what we should be doing. And we should be teaching our children that that is what they should be doing. The way we do that is by doing it ourselves. Uh, having parties for the young, for the children, and make them very enjoyable. Uh, don't make them boring, okay? If you need a, uh, you know, I don't know what uh, what you could do that would make it exciting for them and interesting for them, but there are things that parents can do <coughs> that the uh, um, that the children would find really worth their time and effort. So, uh, but I mean, even if, even if it's not possible to put on some great show for them, just to have them dress up and to have them interact with their other children like them who are innocent and good and decent and, 
and uh, to do fun things. Uh, that's that's so important. That's what it's all about. You want to give them good memories. <clears throat> you want to give the children good memories to take forward with them in life. Um, whether you're homeschooling them, you want to give them good memories. Or teaching them in a school, Catholic, you want to give them good memories. We all should be united in that. <clears throat> and then you, you, the union really takes place in the church before the Blessed Sacrament. We're all united there. We should all be thinking the same way in terms of the faith. Honoring and adoring God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Honoring the Blessed Trinity. And, and doing whatever we do, in word or in work, as St. Paul says, do in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right. That's how we should all be thinking. We should be working together to make that happen. Father, what do you have in front of you there? Uh, well, I actually, I have a copy of Quam Singulari, uh, the document of St. Pius X that I mentioned. also have a printout of that article from the, um, the Catholic Encyclopedia, which I brought along thinking would be of interest. Because I, I brought this along as a reminder mm-hmm. um, that uh, to mention this for people who are looking for some guidance in the question of daily Mass and daily communion for sure. their children. Sure. What is the mind of the Church about that? Mm-hmm. I also have an article here, by the way, uh, that was, it came out, uh, where did it come out? Um, World Net Daily had this article written by Michael Brown. Um... Michael Brown published October 21st, just yesterday. For many on the radical left, abortion is not just a right, it is a right, R-I-T-E. It's like a ritual. And uh, the article is entitled, The Ghastly, Ghoulish Practices of Planned Parenthood. Actually, when I read this yesterday, I thought, there you are. There's the house of horrors. (laughs) That's right. Oh, to Michael Brown. (laughs) But I would, I would say, uh, I would re- return to that, actually, since you mentioned that, Tom, that, <clears throat> hey, you parents want to do something uh, to really impress your children, uh, the, the, the reality of things. Go take them to the abortion clinic. Tell your children, look, children, I'm going to take you to a real house of horrors. I'm going to take you to a real house of horrors where they really do all these terrible things. They don't just talk about them. They don't just act them out. They do them. And we're going to go right there. And they don't even charge you. Okay? <clears throat> they they actually charge you to go in to kill. <clears throat> you know? But, but they don't charge you to stand outside and pray. <laughs> they wish they could, probably. But we're going to go there and we're going to pray a rosary. And uh, take the children. Let them see that for what it really is. But in any case, Tom, uh, it's all a matter of uh, educating the youngsters. This is this is, uh, you know, come up uh, just just yesterday. Uh, we when we woke up here uh, uh, early Monday morning, we found that uh, just a few hours before in Rome, uh, a couple of young men had gone into the churches where they had these idols of uh, Pachamama. Right, the fertility goddess of the Andes and the Amazon and so on, who, who also is represented by a serpent as well, <clears throat> that they gathered up, oh, four, I guess it was four of these, somebody else spied, but four of these idols that were being worshipped in the churches of Rome. Uh, these two fellows, one with a camera and uh, one with the arms to, to gather these, uh, plucked them out of these churches and carried them to the Tiber and filmed as they were throwing them into the Tiber River. And uh, it's obvious that that these were young men, right? They've issued a statement since then. I'm sure the authorities are looking all over for them, and they'll find them. But they've issued a statement saying they did this because there was only one Savior, that's our Lord Jesus Christ. And out of love, even for the Amazonian people, who would be denied the faith in Christ and the grace of baptism, uh, we cannot let that happen. And so, you know, the statement said we had to do this. We had to do this as a matter of faith and hope and charity, to be true to our faith. But what does that say about Francis, right? Um, a modern Pac-Man, I guess. He, um, I'm sure he's upset. Others in the 
in the Amazon Synod, which is concluding now in Rome, were upset about this. They're calling it theft and all the rest, and how this was like an affront to the peoples of the Amazon and affront to the church and all that. No, no, no. Actually, bringing those idols into the church was an affront. Right. And that was an affront to God. Okay. Uh, Francis is willing to, uh, he's gone to the extreme of ecumenism. And that is, he's willing to try to harmonize or unite what's left of any vestige of Catholic worship in the Novus Ordo with uh, idol worship, with worshiping false gods. This is what Francis has done. It is an abomination. And um, this, is, this is what this Amazon Senate really is all about. It's not so much about ordaining married men, or even so much about ordaining married women. It's about destroying the whole idea of the priesthood. It's about destroying the whole idea of who God really is. It's, it's the idea of bringing modernism to full term and, uh, and having their Pachamama give birth to this monster, this modernist monster religion, uh, which is the religion of the earth. You know, you know, Francis actually wrote a book recently in which he talked about the spirit of the world. Spiritus Mundi, the spirit of the world. <clears throat> Does that expression sound familiar? The spirit of the world. I should have brought a copy of uh, The Lord of the World by Monsignor Robert Hugh Benson. We talked about that recently. I should have brought that, and I could have read in about three quarters of a page the scene of the worship of that gigantic statue of the Mother Goddess as the Antichrist is standing there as her child, and he calls her his mother, the mother goddess, the Antichrist, adoring her, leading the thousands and thousands of humanity, right? In uh, places all over the world, and adoring the mother goddess. Well, as I pointed out, I find it very interesting that one of his prime supporters the man who actually organizes all of this mandatory worship of the Mother Goddess is an apostate clergyman named Mr. Francis. Right? Interesting book. Get it. Read it. <clears throat> it is prophetic. But uh, getting getting back to this this whole question here, the um, the Amazon Synod is is precisely about instituting that religion that worldwide religion there. And uh, when these young men took these statues, these, these idols, and threw them in the timer, <clears throat> they were praised by traditional-minded Catholics. The Novus Ordo conservatives all over were praising them, praising them, praising them, saying, now there's Catholic action. The question is, <clears throat> why did this have to wait till the end of the Synod to happen? I mean, I... I, I praise these men, too, for what they did. I mean, I, 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 pre, I appreciate their, their willingness to do this when nobody else would do it. But my question is, is why them, why only them uh, was this done? That others were uh, denouncing this, but no one would take action. Well, maybe it's a turning point. I don't know. But... Um, <clears throat> Maybe now the Catholics who still have the Catholic faith will be emboldened now and not allow uh, Francis to run roughshod over all that they believe. We'll see. We'll see. I pray that is so. But the Novus Ordo, the New Order, has to be utterly rejected. It really is the spiritual house of horrors. And we have to return to the traditional Catholic faith and the traditional Catholic religion which is the real practice of the traditional Catholic faith. Everyone has to do that. Um, <clears throat> otherwise, they're on that spiritual Titanic of the Novus Ordo, like Francis in the canoe with the Pacamama. Um, and uh, it's not on a, on a journey to heaven. So uh, anyway, we just have to, uh, have to hold fast to the traditional Catholic faith and try to convince as many people as possible of the truth of the faith, and to get them, those who have that faith, and to practice the traditional Catholic religion. Absolutely. Father, thanks for being here tonight. Appreciate your time. Oh, certainly, Tom. You're very welcome. Thank you. Yep. Thanks to all of our viewers as well.
by the way. Go ahead. Yes. This is a personal opinion. Okay. Spirit of the world. Yes. The enthronement of the Sacred Heart. Mm -hmm. We ask thee to banish from our homes the spirit of the world, which thou dost abhor so much. Does that sound familiar? Yes, Father. Right? Yes. We said those words just recently. Just tonight. last night. We beg the, the Sacred Heart of Jesus to banish from our homes the spirit of the world which thou dost abhor so much. And here Francis is talking about how he's appealing to the spirit of the world. That's his new religion. Right. So, I'm sorry. That's, <laughs> That's okay. To, to, I thought that uh, that would seem rather relevant it to does. you right it now. Does. So. Yes, well, thank you. Thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Finally, to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.